it's not getting any warmer in here. The bad news is I think they forgot to turn on the uh, air conditioner early this morning. So, Well, it is Father's Day, and I was reflecting on that this morning. Um, Father's Day and Mother's Day, it's an interesting time. We don't usually make a big deal out of it. It doesn't even appear on the church calendar, and yet it's an important thing because it involves um, our children. The thing that makes fathers 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 is their children, and so it's kind of uh, almost a reverse thing, and I was thinking about that this morning, and I had, a, um, I had some books that I'd bought for my uh, children for next Christmas, and I got to thinking, wow, this would be a great day to give it to my kids on Father's Day, my gift to them, and uh, so I did want to, I'll mention that book in just a moment because it has to do with this sermon, but I ran across a uh, poem that was brought to light today by Tim Challies. And I thought it was really good. It's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it's about, it's kind of in honor of being a father. Between the dark and the daylight, when the night is beginning to lower, comes a pause in the day's occupations that is known as the children's hour. I hear in the chamber above me the patter of little feet, the sound of a door that is opened, and voices soft and sweet. From my study I see in the lamplight, descending the broad hall stair, grave Alice and laughing Allegra and Edith with golden hair. A whisper and then a silence, yet I know by their merry eyes they are plotting and planning together to take me by surprise. A sudden rush from the stairway, a sudden raid from the hall by three doors left unguarded, they enter my castle wall. They climb up into my turret, or the arms and the back of my chair. If I try to escape, they surround me. They seem to be everywhere. They almost devour me with kisses, their arms about me entwine, till I think of the Bishop of Bingen in his mouse tower on the Rhine. Do you think, O oh blue-eyed banditti, because you have scaled the wall, such an old mustache as I am is not a match for you all. I have you fast in my fortress and will not let you depart, but put you down into the dungeon in the round tower of my heart. And there will I keep you forever, yes, forever and a day, till the walls shall crumble to ruin and molder in dust away. Does that make you want to read some Longfellow, I hope? Well, the sermon I've titled today is The Gospel of the Glory of Christ, and it was influenced to me. Um, I had been reading a book uh, beginning of the year, I think, um, maybe the end of last year started it. It's called um, God is the Gospel by John Piper and its meditations on the gospel, and it was such an impactful book for me um, for med- and meditations that it was that uh, I decided to buy those all for my kids. And so today that's going to be uh, their gift from me to them. But So I give some credit to that book because it, um, it helped inform me on this particular passage that I want to work on that uh, became kind of a highlight for me going through there. So kids, if you've got your kids' sheet, um, the key words... 
uh, are sea, veil, blinded, light, and glory. And those aren't for you adults, so just forget those, what I just said. Um, those were the kids to really concentrate on. Um, in Palm Sunday, I had a little introduction that I want to repeat today because it's a good introduction to where we're going. And I asked the question, what's the process by which somebody comes to Christ? What's the process that everybody comes to Christ? You know, what does that look like? They obviously need to hear the gospel message, but so we ask, do they need a historical, cultural context? Do they need to have an understanding of all the world religions and evaluate cultures from the world? Probably not. Do they come by being attracted to the offering of an abundant life? Is it hearing a testimony of someone's life who was changed? You know, the old four spiritual laws says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, that's a good start, but it's, it's, it's pretty lacking. And maybe you were taught, as I was, that you share your testimony as your primary tool to show how attractive and beneficial it would be to somebody to become a Christian, kind of a utilitarian view of the gospel. Or maybe it's arguments for the reliability of Scripture that our faith relies upon. Or is there something really compelling that we're missing? My goal today is to see how Scripture looks at these things and ultimately what motivates us. And above all else, in what way is God glorified in those things? So if you grab the, uh, I'm going to be mentioning as we go through um, the outline uh, and just giving an item number if you happen to pick one out, up out there. Um, this first part of the outline is how is the gospel understood? And Jonathan Edwards has an interesting comment on this. He says, unless men may come to a reasonably or reasonable solid persuasion and conviction of the truth of the gospel by the internal evidences of it, in other words, by a sight of its glory, he says, tis impossible that those who are illiterate and unacquainted with history should have any thorough and effectual conviction of it at all. If that's what it is, he says, then other people that aren't acquainted with these things could never get there. So Edwards is arguing that the path to a reasonable, warranted, well-grounded conviction of the truth of the gospel and the scriptures is the same path that, say, the Burmese villager in Chin State, the Muslim Uyghur in a Chinese re-education camp, and a 20-something with progressive Cal Berkeley education working as a content screener for Facebook can follow. Maybe not in that order. It's the path of seeing the peculiar glory of God in the word of God. And it's not through academic abilities. Primarily, it's not through the attractiveness of someone else's life. It's not through remarkable preaching or entertaining and dynamic worship services. Those may be tools that God uses, but those are incidental tools. The first slide that we have scripture on is from Acts 26. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those satisfied, sanctified by faith in me. So Edward says in that quote, 
it is through the sight of its glory. It's a spiritual process that comes from God, and so we hear the glorious gospel message best understood, of course, in the events from what we call Holy Week. So from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter, the gospel is expressed in a real magnified area. That's an area of scripture. That's true. The crucifixion, the resurrection are the terrible and wonderful events where the glory of God shines really brightly. And we need to keep in front of ourselves, though, this glory of God, and we see it in that week. And it's by these things that we are changed. So the second point is the text that I want to be the focus of what we are today, at least a part of it. So let's stand together as we read this next slide, and I will read it. You can follow along. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring to creation, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you might speak to our hearts, that your light may be illumining in our hearts. I pray, God, that you would help me to be faithful to what your word is leading us to and enlightening us to and informing us that we might see your glory most clearly. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. They took out the shelves in the pulpit that hide your water bottle, so it's going to sit right here. The third point, the glory, the veil, and the binding, the blinding, blinding, as in being blind. In the second letter, Paul writes to the church of Corinth. Um, we won't go into the beginning chapters, but we'll pick it up in chapter 3, and, and Paul spends his time contrasting the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which he calls the ministry of death with the new covenant, the covenant of the heart. And he says even the ministry of death came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. And we don't know exactly what that was, but it's probably this radiance. And so the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness, must far exceed its glory in that way. And so this word glory becomes a key component to understanding this whole section all the way from 3.7 to 4.6. Now, I'm going to mention the definition of doxa or glory, and there's nothing deep or hidden in looking at the Greek or anything, or the Hebrew or the Aramaic for that matter. It just means what we would think it means, splendor, brightness, majesty, the glorious moral attributes, the infinite perfections of God, and that's how it's used in this way. So I want to go back and then read the next slide to you. And this goes back to 3.7 because this is important to pick it up here. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory 
For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, the Mosaic law, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so Paul, in a Pauline type of way, compares these things, particularly, we even see that too in, in Hebrews, which is maybe some, why some people feel that um, Paul was the author there. And if I'm reading a slide, if I'm telling you I'm reading a slide and, it, and it's not what's up there, that's my biggest fear is that I look like an imbecile <laughs> telling you to read something. So let me know because uh, Jeremy's trying to track me and keep track of what I'm giving him instructions to do. The point is that somehow the glory of God that Moses reflected as he mediated between God and the people was only a shadow of the ministry of the new covenant in Christ. And Paul's point is that this glory of the new covenant is so far greater than once was, was considered glorious and now is not. And so the glory of the covenant that began with Abraham and continued with the patriarchs and then subsequently with the Mosaic um, covenant with Moses and the people of Israel is by comparison much more glorious and has been in one sense superseded by the new covenant that has been initiated with the full and glorious gospel understanding of Christ. That's the point. And so this word glory is a primary tool that Paul uses to describe the nature of God and the seeing that is required not by our eyes, but he's making this analogy with the heart and with our minds. Now the other key word to consider is veil, as in bridal veil, weddings, um, bridal veil falls, the temple veil. You can probably think of a lot. I was in Yosemite a week ago Friday before the heat, and bridal veil falls is not an impressive veil this year, but it's up there. And what a veil does, of course, is obscure and hide what's behind it. So initially, Paul refers to the physical veil that Moses wore to literally hide the remnants of his glory, of the glory, which he says was fading. But he abruptly changes that reference to a figurative and a spiritual one in this next slide, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, Paul says, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so in contrast to Moses, who hid his face, Paul says, we are very bold in declaring this glorious gospel. So he says that when, the, when Moses is read, there remains a blindness and a hardness to God's glory, and by implication, the gospel. And so even more, there's a much greater glory to be seen, and yet this blindness remains, not just for ethnic Jews, but anyone who hasn't been come into a relationship with Christ. So even more, there's a greater glory to be seen, and yet this blindness remains, particularly though, 
here applying, I think, to Israel, but here having broader applications. Now, we're going to come back to 17 and 18 in a moment, but I want to pick up the idea of the veil of blinding and beholding the glory of God in chapter 4. So I want to look at the slide, the next, next slide, which is verses 3 and 4 in chapter 4, and see where Paul takes these ideas of the gospel, so the veiling and the glory, because I think it relates to where we're going with this idea. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul speaks of the God of this age. It's a clear reference to the role of Satan in the lives, the lives and minds and hearts of unbelievers, particularly. It's not that the gospel is somehow difficult to understand. And if we could just explain it better, if we could just overcome people's objections and historical issues, then people would just be converted, right? But this blinding is an inability to see the light of the gospel of Christ. It's not so much that they won't see, but it is that they can't see. Not a stubborn refusal of people, but an inability to see. And what the spiritually blinded are prevented from seeing is what? It's the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And it is this glory that Paul here remains focused on. So let's talk for a minute about the nature of the gospel. Now, it may be helpful to expand on what is the gospel that Paul speaks. He calls it an interesting term. I think you only find it here the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Makes you even think maybe this light that he saw on the Damascus Road, but I think it's more than that, this light of the gospel. So when we speak about gospel, we can be referencing a number of true facts, uh, events, results of of these things that happened, the cross and everything, the accomplishments, what does it accomplish theologically, and even consequences and conclusions. And So in particular, what is the good news of the gospel? And I wrote down some things that we tend to say, you know, this is is the good news of the gospel, a good and fulfilling life now. Sometimes that's sold as that's the gospel. That's what it's all about. That's what the good news is. Strength to go through hardships. Escape from the punishment of hell. Good thing, right? Internal peace and forgiveness. Um, Eternal life. You know, and... um, Speaking of good news, Audio Adrenaline years ago had a song. I think I've made fun of this before. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. How many remember that song? Yeah, you're showing your age right there. I don't think there's any teenagers in this room that remember that song. It's so old. You can describe the Bible or describe the gospel in Bible terms in terms of events or a central event like the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Um, That's the central event in history. The, The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and was buried and has been raised from the dead. And that's part of the gospel, but that's not the whole good news. You can describe the the Bible, uh, the gospel in terms of achievement of an event. What happened when the event happened in the heavenly places between Christ and God, an objective achievement, which happened before it happened in your heart. So 
our, the wrath God had towards us was absorbed by Christ. Our sin was taken on by Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us. And then eternal life was obtained. That's part of the gospel too. And the gospel can be broken into the terms of the offer of achievement um, and how it's offered and acquired. Because right at the center of the gospel is not just an event, not just an achievement, but a certain offer, isn't it? Like a certain deal. And the deal is you can't work for it. You'll never be good enough for it. You can't perform enough for it. It's been done objectively outside of you. It's, it's by grace, through faith. So that's an achievement. And you can also describe the gospel in terms of its application to your heart. That is, the achievement 2,000 years ago becomes yours, and you experience something between you and God because of what Christ did and achieved before you were ever born. Your experience is reconciliation or forgiveness or justification or eternal life. Those are things that I experience. But finally, where does that lead you? Are these things the good news of the gospel? They're all good news, but are they the good news of the gospel? And even if these are good things, and if they they aren't self-serving things, most of these, forgiveness, justification, the good life, serving God, blessed relationships, taking dominion, investing in people for the kingdom, storing up treasures in heaven, looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, seeing loved ones there and spending eternity there, that is not ultimately the good news of the gospel. David had a a very blessed relationship this week. He lived the good life going down the Trinity River in a canoe and flipping kids over and getting them all wet and investing in their lives. And that's the good life. You ask David, is that the good life? He'd say, yeah, that's the good life. But you know what? That's not opt- That's not the good life of the gospel in the essence of it. What we need to see that all these things are intended to get you to God. We can experience all these things, and maybe we haven't got to God. And if you don't get to God, none of that's good news. The clearest text that relates to the cross and the goal of the gospel is this next slide. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if you don't remember anything else from this sermon, you'll have the whole thing. In that verse, the suffering of Jesus, which is the center of the gospel event, was intended to bring you to God. That's the goal. Number five, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Paul, in our second Corinthians 4 passage, specifically refers to this as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is not just facts. And theological constructs, the glory of God is not just one attribute or another or particular acts, but what Jonathan Edwards calls an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, which is the quote that David read. He concludes that the unique glory of Christ was such that diverse excellencies unite in him. He was talking about the attractiveness, the beauty the incredibleness of Jesus. And I want to, Edwards um, has this whole long way of saying this, so I'm going to read you a little summary of some things that he thought through that. I thought, wow, those are deep. 
um, of how God, Christ, who's the image of God, are worth admiration and praise. We admire him for his glory, but even more because his glory is mingled with humility. Think about that. We admire him for his transcendence, but even more because his transcendence is accompanied by condescension. I know there's a lot of big words there. We admire him for his uncompromising justice, but even more because it's tempered with mercy. We admire him for his majesty, but even more because it is a majesty in meekness. We admire him because of his equality with God, but even more because God's equal. He nevertheless has deep reference for God. We admire him because of how worthy he was of all good, but even more because this was accompanied by an amazing patience to suffer evil. And I'll give you one more. We admire him because he could still the storm, but even more because he refused to use that power to strike the Samaritans with lightning, and he refused to use it to get himself down from the cross. There's a whole list of ones that Edwards goes through. These are the very things that illustrate that Jesus is uniquely glorious, excellent, and admirable, and our heart was made to respond to such excellence and beauty and awe and worship. To see this through, though, requires a change of heart, doesn't it? The natural self-centered condition of the human heart cannot believe because it can't see that beauty. That's the problem. It's not a physical inability like we've talked about. It's a moral inability because they are self-absorbed and they're unable to see their pride and they're blind, he says. And that's why seeing the glory of Christ requires a profound spiritual change. That's the light of the gospel that's only spiritually transferred to us. So in this next slide, when Paul prayed for the believers of the church of Ephesus, he prayed this way, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. That's the point of spiritual seeing, of seeing spiritual things for what they are, seeing them as beautiful and as of great value. So the ultimate good of the gospel, the glory, the gospel of the glory of Christ is seeing, tasting, and embracing the beauty and value of God. And so the aim of the gospel, if we had to say there was one thing, is to display God's glory and remove the obstacles that would be in the way of doing just that, of seeing his glory. So what makes the gospel good news? It is that these realities, the light of the gospel, is what ultimately lead us to God. So number six, the Shema, the Shema from Deuteronomy um, that was recited by every Jewish household. I'll just read a little, little part because I can tell I'm, I'm going to, my target time is going to struggle. So I'm going to drop a little bit out here. Um, every Jewish household would, would read this would know this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Take heart to these instructions with which I charge you this day. You know, Jesus, when he quoted that in the gospel, he added to heart, 
soul, and might. What did he add? Anybody? Mind. He added your mind, too, that we are to love ourselves, God with, with all our minds. So the Israelites weren't commanded just to love him simply what he had done for them, just as we ought not to love God simply for the gifts and benefits we receive from his hand. And neither are we to love him simply for his attributes, his infinite wisdom, his limitless power, his peerless judge and justice, and so on. Rather, we are to love him for who he is in himself. R.C. Sproul had a great quote. We do not really progress in the Christian life until we understand that we are to love God simply because he is lovely and wonderful, worthy of every creature's unqualified affection. So clearly this is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which Paul speaks of, that Satan does not want us to see. And in commenting on this text, John Piper says, Paul says, by this light, the eyes of the spiritually blind are open, light dawns in the heart, the power of Satan's darkness is broken, faith is awakened, forgiveness of sins is received, and sanctification begins. So the remedy is not just seeing the facts of the gospel, but the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I think this blinding, we see it in the, remember the parable of the the sower, he goes out and sows different seeds on different kinds of ground. And he talks about um, sowing it out on the path where the birds devour, but the evil one comes and snatches away. That's the word going out, but the blindness because it says the evil one comes and snatches it away. And that's what happens. They are here, they hear, but they aren't able to see. Now, Edwards, I know he's a real kind of dense. And as a word I found out Eric Jordan liked to use, he's a little obtuse at times. Edwards comments on the differences of opinion and spiritual understanding further. Thus, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of the honey in his mind. The former rests only in the head. Speculation only is concerned in it, but the heart is concerned in the latter. And when the heart is sensible of the beauty and amiableness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in its apprehension. It is implied in a person's being heartily sensible of the loveliness of the thing that the idea of it is sweet and pleasant to his soul, which is far different than having a rational opinion that it is excellent. I know that's a long ways to say, and that's a long way to say something pretty simple. There's a difference between experiencing something and embracing it versus having opinion about it. I think seven turns our corner here. I said we return to 13, Chapter 3, 16, 18. Let's put up that slide. And this is here where I see really an application for us. Paul here contrasts the condition of Israel and the condition of all those who don't see and can't see the light of the gospel. He says this, But when one turns the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The ESV, this is, the way, this is from the ESV, beholding the glory of the Lord. I know there's other versions that say beholding him as in a mirror, darkly, or beholding man as a mirror. This is really more accurate, beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. So when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Satan blinds, but verse 17 holds the explanation. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. That freedom in turn, that freedom to turn, that enablement comes from the Spirit, and then the process begins of seeing, of embracing, of admiring the glory of Christ. And that process is not just a single step, I think Paul is saying. It's an ongoing process of sanctification. It's not just walking an aisle. It is not just saying a prayer. It is the life of beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed. That's how we get there. We can never encounter God and remain unchanged. Beholding the glory, this glory affects our transformation as we are changed into a veritable likeness. Of Christ. So how do we get there and remain there? And I think it's in these verses Paul gives us the counsel that we need to continue to take place and how that's been enabled and how the ongoing life of the believer moves. Just follow those verses through that are up there. He says in these verses, first of all, we, we believers, we have unveiled faces. So if you know Christ, you're here with an unveiled face and our spiritual condition is such that we can see And secondly, he says we are to live the life of beholding the glory of the Lord. That's what we're to be doing. Thirdly, we begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. Because it says we are being transformed into that same image. And fourthly, he says it's a process. It proceeds from one degree of glory to another. And fifth, it comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. It's not just grind out this task, this desire, this striving. And seeking must ultimately come from the Lord, and it becomes a delight in the heart and to the heart of the believer. So what's Paul telling us in this passage? What is it that that is veiled from those who are perishing? Is it the facts and events of the gospel? I don't think that's the veil, the death of Christ, the miracles, the resurrection, the signs. Not so much. Is it the accomplishments of Jesus, wrath absorbed, all these things that I mentioned? I don't think so. Is it that the free offer is made by grace and acquired by faith? I don't think that's what the devil is worried about blinding us to. It is in this verse, 4-3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the believers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of Christ. They can't see it. But we have been granted to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. We've been granted to love him, to desire him, to long to be with him, to embrace all that he is for us, and to put to death whatever it is that would keep us from him. It isn't primarily because we get things. We get a clean conscience. We get reconciliation. We get forgiveness. We get sanctification. We get eternal life. But that can't be our front and center motivation. So finally, the goal to know God, the saving motivation is in this next slide. For wanting eternal life is given here in John. This is eternal life 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul Tripp, I think I used this as a slide one week. The reality is this, maybe not. God is the peace that you're looking for. He's the satisfaction that your heart seeks. He's the rest you crave, the joy you long for, and the comfort your heart desires. All those things that you and I say we need, we don't really need. All those things we think will bring us contentment and joy will fail to deliver. What we need in life is him, and by grace he is with us, in us, and for us. Our hearts can rest because by grace we have been given everything we could ever need in him. I want to end with this quote from Jonathan Edwards in a sermon that he delivered in 1731. And I think it's worth walking through a little bit, pondering these words. Listen to what he says. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what forever will entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another, but that which they shall enjoy in the angels and each other and in anything else whatsoever, including football, that will yield that will that will yield them delight and that which will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. I think that's worth ending with. Let me make one comment. Isn't it sometimes passion we lack? I don't have the passion or the eloquence or the intensity of Jonathan Edwards. I don't think most of us do. But how often do you say or think, I wish I had a passion for God that would help me overcome this sin, or I wish I could be like so-and-so who has such a passion to be Christ's ambassador. Passion is so important to many things in life. Passion for hobbies and for discipline, for vision, for discipling our children or for ministry. But it starts with a passion in our love for God, in our heart, strength, and soul, and mind. And in closing, I'm going to pray a prayer that is in my prayer sheet that I go through every day and has a bunch of scriptures, and then it has, you know, things I'm praying for. But this is one it has that I pray on most days when I come into this. And I think, I think most of this came from Francis Chan, but it 
reminds me of my need and bankruptcy and my desire for God to provide that. So pray with me. Jesus, I need to give myself up. I am not strong enough to love you and walk with you on my own. I can't do it, and I need you. I need you deeply and desperately. I believe you are worth it, that you are better than anything else I could have in this life or the next. I want you. And when I don't, I want to want you. Be all in me, take all of me, have your way with me. Grant me to rejoice and find satisfaction in loving you and loving those you love. Make those things the joy of my heart. Let your light shine in my heart that I might behold your glory. Amen.